The reading for this morning is taken from the book of Psalms. This morning we'll be reading from Psalm 24, which you'll be able to find on page 631 of your pew Bible. Psalm 24. This will be both our reading and our text. The earth is the Lord's and all its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is Jacob, the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face. Lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates, lift up, you everlasting doors. And, let the king, and the king of glory shall come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. So far. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Imagine for a moment that you're standing on the walls of ancient Jerusalem. You're looking over, and you can see the mountains spread out around you. Off in the distance, you see a group of weary and dusty pilgrims coming up the winding road towards the city. They've been walking for a long time, but at the sight of the city, suddenly their heads lift up. There's a spring in their step, and they start calling back and forth to one another. And through the ruckus of the carts coming and the sound of the animals, you hear them singing. The earth is the Lord's and all of its fullness. The world and those who dwell therein. They're singing a psalm. A psalm of David. When would we see this kind of a picture? We're not completely sure. The setting for this psalm is late in the reign of David, and it wasn't until he was after established as king that he had conquered Jerusalem. It wasn't until even later that he brought the ark of God to this capital city. But it would be around that time, late in the reign of David, that these people would be coming to the city in this way. Now, during his reign, David wasn't allowed to build a temple for God in Jerusalem. However, he did set up a tent for the Ark of the Covenant in the city, and he moved the place of worship there. Now, it's uncertain if this is the holy place that he meant as he speaks in the psalm. More likely, the plans for the Temple of Solomon have been drawn up, and he's thinking ahead to the future. But whatever David has in mind, it's certainly one of these holy places, the tent or future thoughts of Solomon's temple, that he references in this psalm, in verse 3, which would place it later in his life. After the people have had Jerusalem as their capital city, they've settled in, and the ark 
would be entering in. With this setting, this setting of pilgrims ascending to the city, perhaps in accompaniment of the ark, that will be what we'll keep in mind as we'll examine this psalm together under the following theme and points. Worship the king. And we'll see, first of all, that he's the king of creation, the king of righteousness, and finally, the king of glory. The opening words of our psalm are a statement of fact. The earth is the Lord's and its fullness, all its fullness, and the world and those who dwell therein. This is a confession of God's sovereign power over all of creation. Every corner of the globe owes its existence to the creative power of God. Every rock and tree, every beautiful sunset. Maybe last night if you went out and you saw the stars overhead. Every aspect of creation owes its existence to the creative power of God. He created it because it pleased him to do so. He delighted in every secret creation that's in the farthest reaches of the universe where nobody but God gets to see it and delight in it. These are places which man will perhaps never see, but are created solely for our God to enjoy. Now, as part of his handiwork, creation itself responds accordingly. It might be true that this world is in a broken and fallen state, and yet it is still able to point mankind to the fact that there is a creator there. The heavens declare his glory and the skies proclaim the work of his hands. All of them bear witness to the splendor of God's majesty. It's meant to make man feel small. It's meant to show him how insignificant he is compared to the awesome creative power of God. It's meant to leave him asking, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. However, it's not simply left at that. The earth is indeed the Lord's and declares his glory. But by adding the parallel statement here, the world and those who dwell therein, the psalmist is also including the entire scope of civilization. From the first breath of Adam to the breaths of all who hear the piercing sound of the trumpet on the last day, every human being owes their existence to God. Every breath that's drawn from one moment to the next is owed to the undeserving, undeserved, upholding power of a God who grants it as a precious gift. The knowledge that God was this God, that God was the God who created all nations, would have been knowledge that was precious to the people of Israel. In the ancient Near East, many of the people who lived there believed that the gods that were among them were gods that were regional. If you lived in one area, that's the god you worshipped. If you lived in another, that's the god you worshipped. If you lived among the gods of the Canaanites, you worshipped the Canaanite gods. But if you moved into the territory of the gods of Moab, you worshipped the gods of Moab. 
If you lived by a river, you worshiped a God who would be able to control that river and perhaps protect your crops. If you lived elsewhere, if you lived being heavily involved in the army, you might be more inclined to worship a God who would support that, a God of war. There was no need to submit to one God or another for them as the overarching rule. You just find the God or goddess that worked for you, and you worshiped him or her. You find a similar attitude today, don't you? Some people will say, your God works for you. What I worship works for me. Don't bother me with your religion. I want to find my own way and my own spirituality. In today's postmodern culture, you don't have one way, one truth, or one life. There are many ways to the same destination. Our psalm today, however, doesn't allow for that attitude. The earth is the Lord's, it confesses. The earth is the Lord, it proclaims to all the nations because he has founded it and because he has established it. He's not a God over one particular event, like Baal, the thunder God of the nations around Israel. People said that Baal defeated a sea monster and drove back the chaos of the mysterious deeps to create the world. But God isn't a God who drove back the deeps. He didn't defeat the monster of the seas in order to create land. There was no need for Israel to mythologize their God because he was much more powerful than that. The Lord didn't simply drive back the seas. He created them. He founded the earth upon them. The waters, established it upon the waters. The waters there that are mentioned, the ocean currents in which the monsters of the deep could roam, they weren't something that were to be pushed back, that were to be feared, because God was the one who created them. It wasn't something that was defeated, but it was all held in the hand of the one who was over it all. For the psalmist, these things weren't a hindrance, these things weren't a threat. They were all part of God's creative plan. The psalmist here is saying, you think a God like Baal is great? God's power is mightier and his foundations are unshakable. All must bow before him and worship him. Now that all must worship him is a great comfort as well. Some suggest that it might speak badly of God to demand worship. But here we see that the opposite is true. Why? Because God doesn't simply present himself as the creator of all, but he presents himself to his people as Yahweh. You see the capital letters for the Lord in verse 1? That's his covenant name. That's promising that this great and awesome God, this mighty God who created the universe, was their covenant God. 
He took a special interest in his people, and he loved them. Isn't that beautiful, brothers and sisters? It gets even better because the same is true for us today. It's not just limited to those people so many thousands of years ago. But it's true for us today. God isn't some distant deity who created the earth and then stood back to watch it. Like a watchmaker seeing things unfold. Just winding it up and leaving it at that. No, he's intimately involved. And he's shown this intimate involvement with his creation, this relationship that he has with his people throughout history. And for us today, most clearly, throughout his own son. In the Gospel of John, chapter 1, we read that Christ was the one through whom all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Not a single part of this world was made apart from the Word, our brother and Savior, the Lord Jesus. For the sake of Jesus Christ, this mighty God who created everything from the vast expanse of the universe down to the intricacies of the smallest cell is our God and our Father. He watches over those whom he loves from the beginning to the end. And this is the involvement that we see through our Lord Jesus Christ. This leads us into our second point. After having described to the people how much more power their faithful covenant Lord has than all the gods of the surrounding nations, the psalmist lays out a dilemma. If God is indeed as powerful as he's described, you just said he's the king over all creation. You just said he's the one who created everything. He's the one to whom all nations, by their very existence, owe their reverence to. Whom we should pledge our perfect allegiance to. But there's a problem. If God is indeed as powerful as he's described, if he's indeed a holy and good God, then what about us? How can sinful man possibly stand before him? Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? Maybe you yourself have felt this way. Maybe you've come to a particular moment in your life where you've seen the depths of your own sin. It could be one particular sin that you keep falling into time and time again. Or maybe it's a myriad of sins I have just built up over time. And suddenly you've come to the point where they seem like an overwhelming mass to you. Everything has come together and come crashing down on you. And you suddenly feel that reality. You've been given the realization that sin has soaked into every part of your life. And you ask yourself, how can I possibly come before this 
almighty, all-powerful, and holy God. For an Israelite, the answer to the question, who can come before this God? Who shall stand in his holy place? Would come quickly to their lips. They wouldn't immediately think of themselves, but they would reflect on, okay, who actually stands in that holy place? And they would think about the priests, the men who are at work there. These men would be carrying out sacrifices day in and day out. That would be the first thing that pops to their minds. But that's not the answer that's given in this psalm, is it? Instead, the psalmist gives us a four-part answer here. It says, He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully. He who has clean hands. The word for clean here can be translated as innocent. The person who comes before the Lord must be innocent of all wrong actions. Nothing could have spoiled him. And this is something that was most clearly represented to the people by the question of corruption. Whenever you came into contact with something that was unclean, it stained you. So you touched a dead body, that contaminated you. You were considered as unclean. After that, anything you touched was considered as unclean. Anyone who came into contact with you was considered as unclean. Anyone whom they came into contact with was considered as unclean. God was using this as a picture to show the the contagious nature of sin. The deep rot that can set in and how it can infect those who are around. The word for clean here, clean hands, is not just a picture of the physical uh, holiness that someone could have. It wasn't just that uh, contagion, but it, was, it wasn't just uncleanness that was passed on from one person to another, but it was a picture of the cleanness that was needed for someone who was to stand before the Lord. Someone needed to be pure in act. But they also needed to be pure in heart, and that's the second thing that's mentioned here. A pure heart. With this demand, this psalmist gets to the root of the problem. It's like when Jesus said, if anyone looks at a woman lustfully, he has already committed adultery in his heart. Both Christ and the psalmist recognized that it's not something that's just limited to outward action, but this is a matter of the heart that needs to be examined. It's very possible to break a command without even having taken it to its actual conclusion. The man who stands before God must not just have clean hands, but he must have a pure heart. Who does not lift up his soul to what is false. Who does not lift up his soul to an idol. The word for idol here represents something false. It represents emptiness, vanity, or nothingness. In the days of Israel, this was often shown in a very real and public way. People would worship idols. Today we can see it sometimes more subtly and sometimes just as real and publicly. Our idols tend to be people, our jobs, our education, relationships, or money. 
Whenever we push something aside, whenever we push aside a command of God to get what we want, we elevate that particular thing higher than God. It might not seem like a big deal to be involved with various things, like doing schoolwork on a Sunday or coveting someone's new boat or house or becoming such workaholics that we don't even have time for devotions. But when we do this, we're lifting up our souls to something other than God. We push aside God for our own benefit. We are lifting up our souls to what is false. And lastly, we see such a man is a man who has not sworn deceitfully. It's a man who honors the command to bear, not to bear false witness. He's a man who holds the truth as precious, who has absolute integrity in all of his dealings, a man who walks in the light. What kind of a man could stand up to such a list? What kind of a man could stand up to such a list? Could a priest? Could Abraham? Could David? Kids, could you? Not even the holiest in Israel could. No, not one. There was once perhaps a time when we could stand before God when we were created good and in his image, when we were created with absolute purity in heart, in hands, in our acts, in, in our affections. We were created good and in his image. But the fall corrupted all of that. We willingly threw ourselves into the abyss. And now there's a deep-seated unholiness that's infected us to our very core. Like a leper, everything we touch is corrupted and defiled. And even our best acts cannot stand before God. No one can stand before God. That is, ordinarily, no one can stand before God. An Israelite would recognize this. When they see these demands, these commands that are laid out before them, who may ascend to the hill of the Lord? They would recognize this, that nobody can measure up to these commands. He recognizes that no one can stand before God, this awesome and mighty three times holy God, apart from if they have been purified. He recognizes that only the fact that God has allowed for purification allows him to stand. Someone once asked me a while back, how can the Israelites speak so lovingly of the law? Why is it so precious to them? Well, this is why. It allows them to stand as pure before God. God himself has allowed for them to use the sacrifices of rams, lambs, bulls, and goats to cleanse them of their sin. He's allowed the priests to stand as mediators between him and them. And he has been willing to offer forgiveness. He has been willing to offer forgiveness. It's an act of God. It always has been and always will be. God reached out to accomplish what man could not. 
when man had his terrible fall in Adam, God promised redemption. God saved the human race from, in the time of the flood through showing grace to Noah. God chose a special people for himself through Abraham. And God allowed for communion with him through the law of Sinai. All of man's hope rests in the fact that our covenant God has given his word. He has given a way for men to come to him. And in that word, the Israelites are called to put their hope that their God is faithful and true. For those Israelites who sought communion with God in the way that he provided, it was possible to stand before him. It is possible to lay claim to clean hands and a pure heart. Righteousness from the God of their salvation is indeed possible, and blessing can be found in him. Such is the generation of those who seek him. Only through seeking him and his face in the manner that he has laid out for his people can they stand before him. And the same is true for us today as well, isn't it? We are Gentiles, non-Jews. And as Gentiles, we were alienated from God without hope and without a future. But God in his great mercy has reached out to his chosen and laid claim to them through his son Jesus Christ. To all who received him, we read in John 1, verse 12 and following, to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Because of that promise, and because of the work of Christ, we can lay claim to the words of verses 5 to 6 of our song. In Christ, each person can say of themselves, he shall receive blessing from the Lord, and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is Jacob, the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face. Now we know that no priesthood could truly stand before God. Even with the Israelites, they recognized that. The priests were walking back and forth in the temple, carrying out their tasks from day to day. But they needed purification to stand before God. They needed to constantly go through ceremonial washings, constantly go through different sacrifices. Jesus, however, has become our perfect high priest. He fulfilled the requirements of the law faultlessly once and for all. There is no need for constant purification for him. He has no need to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sin and then for those of his people. He did them once and for all when he offered up himself. And if you turn to him in faith, you too can find this forgiveness, this redemption that's offered. This leads us into our third point. Imagine for a moment taking a step back from the psalm. Imagine for a moment that you are a member of ISIS. That you are an enemy of the British crown. You're seen as a terrorist, the lowest of the low. Now, imagine that you want to gain entry into the royal palace. Everyone knows who you are. Everyone knows what you've done. Think even as recently as Omar Khadr. Everything that everybody has thrown against him. 
His name is pasted up everywhere. And so many people would not even receive him into their company. How quickly do you think you'd be allowed as such a person to gain entry into the palace? Probably not at all. But what were to happen if you were accompanied by the queen herself? What would happen if she pardoned you of all your crimes, took you by the hand, and walked you through the city gates? Wouldn't that be marvelous? That is the status that the people of Israel can now claim. Having been established as God's covenant people, purified through the steps which God gave to them, they can now gain entry into his presence. Accompanied by the sovereign Lord, they can now enter into his gates. And that brings us to the final part of our psalm, where we see the cry, Lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors. The language that's used here is the, in these final verses is reminiscent of the arrival of the ark in Jerusalem. Only the Lord himself could lay claim to the title of the king of glory. And this is where the image of the ark being surrounded by the people coming up to Jerusalem comes in. Because as the ark came in, people would be saying, the king of glory is with us. Since the Lord himself was so closely connected with his ark, the image which is shown here is one of the ark being welcomed into Jerusalem to the sound of cheering throngs. The people are admitting in and they are being escorted in by the one who was the true king, the true king of Israel, the creator and the king of the whole world for that matter. And it's that escort that marks this psalm as a psalm that would be sung as they come in, as one of pilgrims coming up to Jerusalem, ready to worship at the temple. They eagerly await the chance to offer their sacrifices to the Lord and celebrate him as their covenant God, but not because of their own purity, but because they have been escorted in by the king. As they approach the gates, they call out a ritual phrase, Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. The King of glory, the King of kings and Lord of lords is with them in a spiritual sense. They of themselves wouldn't be welcome into his courts. They would be enemies of the ruler of the universe. But he has established himself as their covenant Lord, and so they're coming in under his name. They're coming in under his protection. He has given them the opportunity to stand as pure and clean before him and in close relationship with him. Their entry into the city as pilgrims may only be barred at the risk of the wrath of the king. The ritual response is called out to the pilgrims standing in the gate. Who is this king of glory? The pilgrims must make it plain that they are confessing the true king. There is no earthly Lord who's asking to be led into this fortress. No king, not even an emperor, who's challenging the gates and demanding entrance. No, they come in the name of the Lord their God, and they let the gatekeepers know this. Who is this king of glory? 
The Lord, strong and mighty, mighty in battle. Again, the covenant name, Yahweh, Sabaoth, Yahweh of hosts. He rules all the heavenly hosts and has all the power of the universe at his command. Nothing and no one who can stand, there's no one who can stand in opposition to him. No one who can stand in his presence except his chosen ones, those who are precious to him. They and they alone will be granted entry in his name. Who is this king of glory? We confess our true king. We confess Jesus Christ, our divine warrior king. All authority in heaven and on earth has been placed under his feet. He is the royal commander of the heavenly hosts. Already when he was on earth, he could speak words and legions of angels would come. How much more powerful is he now? Think about this for a moment, brothers and sisters. Do you have faith in Jesus as your Lord? Then you have a brother who is the most powerful king in the universe. He is the fierce warrior king, the rider on the white horse whose name is Faithful and True. He is called the Word of God and who has written on his thigh the words King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Some of you may have earthly brothers who care for you deeply and you know that you can call on them in times of trouble and they'll come to bat for you. Well, this brother has come to bat for you. He loves you so much that he has died for you and he governs you by his word and spirit. He defends and preserves you as your king in the redemption that he bought for you in his blood. And he makes all his people kings under him. As king under him, you can fight with a free and good conscience against sin and the devil in this life. And as king under him, after this life, you may pass through the gates of eternity and rule with him forever over all creatures. All of this was not done because of any worthiness of our part. There was no goodness, no spark of faith that drew us in. We were enemies of God. There was nothing to us that God would desire to reach out first. And yet he did reach out first. Just as he reached out to Israel as his people in the Old Testament, giving them laws by which they could live in communion with him, now today he's also taken the initiative and reached out to us first, laying claim to his chosen ones and turning their hearts to him. Cry out, lift up your heads, you ancient doors, and be lifted up. Because we are coming in with our king. Let us now act, rejoice, and sing, responding in thankfulness and in faith. Amen.